podcast for Necrotronic. My name is Tom Chick, and I am here with Kia Roach-Turner and Tristan Roach-Turner. They're not here yet, actually. They're going to be here in a minute. We're going to have a brief conversation about Necrotronic. Now, you may not know these names, in which case, uh, you should. They made a pretty amazing zombie movie called Wormwood Road of the Dead uh, a few years back, which uh, I, I feel belongs in the, anal- in, the, in the rare annals of great zombie movies. I mean, there's a lot of terrible zombie movies, but I feel like these guys really got it. Uh, and Necrotronic, that's their second movie, uh, although it doesn't have quite the same lightning-in-a-bottle quality that I feel Wormwood has, you can clearly see the same spirited filmmakers at work. This time they've got more resources, they've got more people working with them, they've got a larger, more varied cast, more CG, uh, just a lot more to work with, and you can still see some of the same excitement and energy that they put into Wormwood. Uh, Necrotronic is currently available for video on demand. I recommend that you check it out. And in the meantime, actually maybe afterwards, because there are arguably, I guess, spoilers in our conversation, uh, I spoke with them from the perspective of someone who had already seen the movie. Uh, so after you see Necrotronic, maybe come on back, listen to my conversation with Kia and Tristan Roach-Turner. Let's go over and meet them. My name is Kia Roach-Turner. I'm the writer-director of Necrotronic, and my voice is slightly more high-pitched than my brother's. <laughs> Hello guys, my name's uh, Tristan Roach-Turner, I'm the writer-producer, <laughs> I'm Tristan Roach-Turner, I'm the writer-producer and stoked to be on Quarter 3 with Tom Cheek, you're the man. Uh, no, Tristan, Tristan, keep talking like that, it's super easy to distinguish you guys there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no worries, Tom, I'll tell you anything you want to know about <laughs> Actually, now you're kind of scaring me, so don't do that, <laughs> having just seen Necrotronic, yeah. So, all right, from from watching Wormwood, because I, I, oh my, you guys just blew my mind when Wormwood came out. From watching that movie, I feel like I know a lot about you guys. I mean, you obviously are into zombie movies from all the way back to Romero. You're children of what George Miller did with the apocalypse in Australia. You remind me of Sam Raimi. For You just you refuse to let the camera stand still. Uh, I might even guess that you've maybe played a, a Resident Evil game or two in your time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so I watch Wormwood, and I'm, I'm keenly aware in a good way of the stuff that makes you guys who you are, like your, your creative foundations. But I have a harder time pinpointing where Necrotronic came from. So can you tell me a little bit about how the guys who made Wormwood became the guys who made Necrotronic? Um, if you... um. If you take Blade Runner, Alien, Big Trouble in Little China, The Thing, and Ghostbusters and mix it all up in a bucket and shoot it with a shotgun and then throw <laughs> uh, what's left up on the silver screen, that's Necrotronic. Uh, I'm so glad to hear you call out the Big Trouble in Little China vibe because I definitely got a sense for that as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like we love, we, we must have watched that film like 40 times like um, just in one year growing up. And what, one of the things we loved about John Carpenter is he's such a good filmmaker and he knows his craft and he does practical effects and horror and action so well, but he's so funny, you know, and that's something that he and sort of um, Sam Raimi share is like this wonderful, wonderful sense of humour. And um, we, we, we just loved how silly 
and at the same time how thrilling, action-packed and kind of scary Big Trouble in Little China was. So that really was the tone that we were going for. Mm -hmm. And it was semi-irritating on set because we kept referencing it. And none of these young people would have heard about it. I'm like, how can you not have seen Big Trouble in Little China? That's like that's like one of the great action films of the '80s. But none of nobody had seemed to really hear about it. I mean, everybody knew the thing, and everybody knew, you know, Halloween, all that stuff. Um, but nobody really talks about how good Big Trouble in Little China was. Without Big Trouble in Little yeah. China, there's no The Matrix. John Carpenter bought that chop socky Hong Kong stuff to to, to sort right. of um, mainstream. Uh, American action film. So nobody talks about that because that's still being affected even in big Marvel films now. So he really was the grandfather of, of, of this kind of genre. Yeah, and, I think, um, it's just not talked about enough. I, I think for some reason it didn't break out of the 80s as well as some of Carpenter's other movies, which is mystifying to me as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now you guys' names are all over the place in, in the Wormwood credits. So you're writing, directing, uh, even production design, editing, I think. Uh in yeah. the spirit of true indie production, you can clearly see you guys had your fingers in all the pies. That's not mm. the case in Necrotronic, and I'm curious if it was a challenge to let go of controlling those things or if it was a relief to not have to do them. Um, uh, I'd well, say a bit of both, yeah. Like, yeah. One thing, having a proper budget to work with, is that you just get surrounded by people that are really, really good at their job. Um, so we were able to bring probably about half of our Wormwood crew into Necrotronic. So we got we got a bit of that original flavour in there too. But a lot of the new people that we were working with were just, they were straight off the back of massive productions that had filmed in Australia. So a lot of our crew came off the back of um, uh, Ridley Scott's Alien Covenant. Uh, some were coming straight off the back of Aquaman. So these are people that are just guns at their jobs. Um, but having said that, you know, the fast, I guess, furious kind of way that we shoot on Wormwood, it's just we had a lot more flexibility and were able to just run and gun and get, a, like, steel shots here and there, whereas it was a lot more structured with Necrotronic. So that was that took a bit of getting used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get the sense that making a movie, a lot of it is the uh, the craft of averting crises. Uh, I'm curious, <laughs> can you relate to me uh, one of your biggest crises on the set of Necrotronic so that next time I watch it, I can think, you know, there but for the grace of God, they got that scene in the can. What's something that could have gone horribly wrong that was a crisis averted when you were shooting Necrotronic? Ooh. Although I, maybe I, you know maybe thing... there were no crises. Like if it went super smooth and no problems, that's great. <laughs> there's uh, no, there's always <laughs> that's funny. That's um... really funny. The idea that you're going to make a film without some kind of horrible debilitating crises is humorous to me. No, no, no. Every day is a crisis. That's crisis is the word for for filmmaking. It's it's um it, it's making it's creating through crises in fast forward is really what filmmaking is. Mm -hmm. Um, there, there's there's a scene where we have to put one of the main characters basically in a vat full of steaming plasma. And that was really tricky. I mean, I just couldn't tell you how many health and safety meetings we had about that and how, how difficult it was because we had to shoot part of it with a stunt person, part of it with one of the principals. Um, you know, there was talk about what happens if it gets in our eyes, what happens if this happens, what if, if they drown, they hit their head and fall. It's so slippery. Like the plasma is like there's soap and then 10 degrees to the right of soap is how slippery plasma is. It's like, 
it's in, it's incredible. So we had so many people sort of slipping and sliding all over the set, and it's a real health and safety issue. So that scene I think was the most difficult, surprisingly, because I would have thought that some of the stunts, throwing people off buildings, blowing their heads off, jerking them back, smashing them through glass plates, I would have thought all of that stuff would have been difficult. But that stuff our stunt team did on their head. That was actually just the like, simple yeah, stuff. Yeah, that's the that's the easy bit because they're such pros. But when you put somebody in a vat of plasma, that doesn't happen every day. So there's no rule book. There's no oh, we've done this 10 times last Wednesday. It's like, no, no, we've never done this before. So we need to, we don't know what's going to happen. So that, weirdly, was the, the most difficult one, and, and it did prove to be quite difficult. Yeah, any time you see a necroportal, that scene basically took twice as long as what we had thought that it was going to take, <laughs> which had a, a flow-on effect for other scenes in the production. So there's a scene yeah. where there's a, an action sequence down a corridor. Um, we actually had, like double that scene to shoot. We had it all storyboarded out. It was meant to be bigger and chunkier and more elaborate. But then we just ran out of time. We had, I think we had one day, one and a half days to shoot that entire sequence. So, yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Where you know where, how we did things on Wormwood, it was just a, a bit more run and gun, a lot more flexible. We, we probably could have shot the whole thing in that amount of time, but just because it's a bigger production, it's a little bit slower. Um, yeah, we just we just couldn't quite nail it to, to the level that we'd sort of planned for. Because I think with Wormwood, our setups, we were doing about, I think our average was about 70 to 80 setups per day, which is hate for a movie. I think we even, our, the, the most we did on a single day was 100 setups. And I think most sort of um, more substantial budget films do about 20 setups a day. So the Necrotronic was still hammering. We still, I think we we're still making about 45 to 50 setups a day but it just it just wasn't quite as quick as how we shot on Wormwood because it's sure. obviously a bit the crew. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear you mention the scene with the plasma because I'm assuming you're talking about where uh, Tess Halbrick comes out of the the 3D printer right? Yes. Now I uh, I get the sense it can't you guys seem to love this idea of female characters who undergo transformative experiences and they become superheroines with, with superpowers is this a conscious decision or does it just happen in the course of writing the story? Well, why is there, why do you have a Bianca Brady in Wormwood and a Tess Halbert character like this in Necrotronic? Oh, I think it's because chicks are awesome. Yeah, <laughs> we grew up with a single mom and so yeah, we just have a lot of respect for that right there. And Yeah, well, one of, personally, one of my favourite characters ever is um, Ellen Ripley from Aliens. That's, she's just like my favourite action hero ever and yeah, I think that just is ingrained in my subconscious. <laughs> right. So anytime me and Kara are writing, we always, I don't know, we always seem to just try to get awesome female characters having to go through really badass shit and then come through as just blazing paragons of glory to save the day on the other side. Now, had you guys I seen... think it's just because oh. I have like a really heightened feminine side too. So anytime I write an action <laughs> hero, it's got to be a woman. Now, had you guys seen Tess Halbrick in Alien Covenant before you cast her? Yeah. Okay. Yes. She's so imposing in that movie. Like, I, I just feel like she yeah. really stands out. Uh, I mean, that movie's got a, a huge, famous cast, and I'd never seen her before. And I just remember watching Alien Covenant and going, "Whoa, who is this?" I, I watched Alien Covenant, and all I could think is that cool. chick should be the lead, and it should be aliens. Like, I want to see that chick shoot aliens with like a massive yeah. plasma rifle. Yeah. And I was just and, like, you know, like, we got to put her in our movie and make that happen. And like, I, I just. I would love to see Tess Halbrecht take over the Ellen Ripley, Ripley role. That, that would just be like dr a dream for me. Like and a young Ripley, right? Like yeah. a young Ripley. She, she kind of has that. She's as tall as Sigourney Weaver. She's so tall and she's got sort of similar kind of um, 
she's got that sort of thin, sleek, uh, almost panther-like kind of quality on yeah. screen. And I'm just like, oh, man, I want to see her go toe-to-toe with an alien, man. And, and, and if I'm not going to yeah. get that, then she's going to go toe-to-toe with a demon. And so we, <laughs> yeah. we did that with her in, in this film. Yeah, she's great. Uh, now, based on the based on the name of the character, I'm assuming that you didn't necessarily have a, a, a stately French woman in mind for for Monica Bellucci's role. Uh, how did you guys end up with uh, with Monica Bellucci? Oh man, we actually didn't think there was any chance that she was going to jump on board. Um, yeah, so you know, obviously our our, our our producing partners reached out to her agents uh, by you know the, the normal sort of channels, but me and Care actually wrote her a. a big long letter just basically saying how much we loved her and how much we really really wanted her to you know have a look at the script and check out the role of Finnegan and um yeah she read the script and loved it and jumped on board and we couldn't believe it yeah it was it was amazing yeah and it's one of those things we did kind of write it I guess it's like an Irish name but we sort of talked to her about it we're like should we change it to something French and she's like no I am Finnegan you're Finnegan yeah cool who cares that's all right you know Europe it's uh, islands in Europe, you know. Maybe her <laughs> mum was French. I don't know. Dad was Irish. She was. She was. Her mum was French, and she's a necromancer. You know, there you go. Boom. It does yeah, kind of make you, as an, as an audience member, too. put together a, a backstory for her, like in your head, in your imagination. You right? kind of have to because it doesn't make any sense. But then again, we're talking about plasma portals, uh, demons <laughs> in phones. I mean, really, it's a comic book. It doesn't have to make super sense. It's okay. We're allowed to have some bizarre, weird anomalies in there. I mean, you, you kind of have to, don't you? It's like a crazy science fiction film. So, you know, I think we got away with it. So, speaking of comic books, I want you guys, I want to do a thought exercise with you guys. Disney comes to you, and they say, okay, Tristan, Kia, we want each one of you to take one of the Marvel superheroes to, to his or her next step in this Marvel Cinematic <laughs> Universe, but you've each got to choose a separate one. So, uh, which do you each pick? And you can do anything you want. Look, Disney's going to give you carte yeah. blanche. My, I, I, you know, my brain went straight to Wolverine, but actually, my favourite, um, my favourite uh, Marvel character has always been and will always be Spider-Man. And I'm talking specifically about the Todd McFarlane era, um, where Spider-Man was dark and he was drawing Spider-Man like some kind of twisted spider. He actually moved and looked like an insect, and it went really dark. I mean, Spider-Man was going up against um, the Goblin, who was more like a serial killer than a than a classic baddie. And I would love to do a dark kind of um, Spider-Man. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just me. Mm-hmm. Mm, that is a tough one. There's a lot to choose from. Juggernaut. Yeah. I would do Juggernaut spin-off. Badass, R-rated, and he's just being a total criminal. I have a quick question. So I, do you guys know the movie American Werewolf in London? Yeah. That's kind of a dumb question because also there's have you read have you read the Bible? It's like, it's <laughs> well, there is there's also the greatest horror films of all time, and there's a lot of John yeah, Landis also, and I think what you guys are doing, and certainly yeah. with uh, uh, the oh, the best friend. You. So here's a question I have for you. This is uh, an ongoing debate I have with a really close friend of mine. Uh, is yeah. Griffin Dunn's character in American Werewolf in London real mm. or imagined? In, in, in other words, did John Landis make a universe where there's werewolves and ghosts? Or did he make a universe where a werewolf who's transforming feels guilty and he manifests like dead people in his imagination? Do you have an opinion on no, that? No, 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 no. He's absolutely real. He's absolutely real. So he, he made a world where like it's so specific that that is the law. So every time you every time the werewolf kills, the ghost haunts the werewolf. 
And I don't know who came up with that, but it's brilliant. I mean, it made for such a good script. And it's, I don't, yeah, I don't think there's any, who are you for? What, 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 what I, do you think? I, I know. You guys are helping my friend. I'd always thought he was, it was imaginary <laughs> because I, and I'm not surprised to hear you guys say that because here's the deal. I thought, you know, it's a bit too much to have a universe where there's werewolves and ghosts. John Landis, he's probably, he should focus. And plus, you know, we've already got a bunch of unreliable narrator stuff with him, his vision about the Nazis breaking in when they're watching the Muppets. So my temptation was to streamline and focus American Werewolf in London. I'm not the least bit surprised that you guys want a world with ghosts and werewolves in it. So fair enough. No, well, yeah. it's, it's not so when, much when you're a werewolf and you kill someone, you absorb their power. I'm pretty sure you absorb their soul power. You eat their like, soul, yeah. The ghost in the afterlife is there as sort of like your slave almost. Maybe not your slave, but you're, you sort of have the power over them and well, to be but fair, I, there's I, I, there's internal support for for both. I, I don't know that it's uh it's that. I'd like I think you can interpret it either way based on certain moments in the movie. Well, the thing hey, is, hey, I, I, I hey, think Tom. we're probably looking at it from a perspective of writers. Um, so like with, with a law, once you make a rule as a writer, it's kind of in stone. So you've kind of got to go, okay, that's the rule, that's the rule. But the great thing about film is it's interpretive. So it can yeah. be whatever the hell you want. Like it's not said either way. So your interpretation is absolutely correct. So is mine. It's like, does Shane die at the end of Shane? You decide. You know what I mean? It's up to you. It's right. the audience decides. Uh, calculated ambiguity is, I think, an important part of movie making. Certainly storytelling in, on many levels, but especially movie making. Yeah. Yeah. I wish our, pro- I wish made, our um, production company was called, um, uh, what did you just say? Uh, calculated Ambiguity? Yeah, calcu- you guys can have that. <laughs> it's all yours. I'm going to write that down. Gentlemen, I certainly appreciate you uh, talking with me. Congratulations on uh, Necromantic. I hope it does very well for you. And finally, I want to thank you guys for, for clarifying for me f- why demons do that freaky crab walk thing. That little move at the end of the movie. I was like, oh, of course that's why they do that. So, <laughs> so they can flip over and they can better access the mouth to get to the soul. <laughs> Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. My thanks again to Kia Roach-Turner and Tristan Roach-Turner. I'll be back with my normal movie podcast format the end of this week so join me christian molonski and kelly wand for that next time thanks for listening cheers i prefer that we be more capable and prepared than lucky observation reflection faith and determination in this way we may navigate the path as it unfolds before us all right, and we have, what, eight more recharge cycles to go before we get to Aurigai 6? Is that a question, yes, sir? Yes, Walter, that's a question. That is correct.